Music can resonate with such a unique feeling. A feeling of energy that connects with your soul and makes you want to follow that feeling. In this episode, my friend Patrick Maskell talks about that feeling of music in his life. A self-taught guitarist with an intrinsic desire to deliver genuine feeling of something magical through songwriting. All the guitar players that I've loved, they have a voice in terms of how they play their guitar and what they do with it. And that the whole point of that voice is it's it's saying something. It's all right, it's it's not saying words, but it's definitely saying something that you know that the listener is 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 feeling you know it's painting a picture it's it's almost got colors to it do you know what i mean i'm anthony stoker i design shoes write letters and this is the view from a shoe where we explore the creative journey a metaphorical walk one guest at a time Patrick is a British songwriter and musician, having written songs recorded by an array of international artists such as Cher, Nelly Furtado and James Morrison to name a few. We explore his musical journey, the moment he first met an electric guitar and the profound effect of music on his life, and how music can both inspire joy and bring solace to anyone and everyone. I began the conversation by asking about his earliest memory of shoes. Um, well, it's funny because Joseph, my son, is now 10. And there's a point that comes, I think, um, with boys in particular. I'm not so sure about girls. I'll find that one out in a couple more years. But where, yeah, they, they suddenly become very aware of brands and this, that and the other. And um he's definitely in that place and I can completely relate to it because I can remember fixating on certain pairs of trainers when I was probably about eight or nine maybe nine probably I remember there were these Puma football trainers that I just wanted them so badly and just everything about the way they look they're only like black leather trainers with a white Puma stripe but they were Puma and it was they were cool and yeah and obviously they probably would have been more expensive than the you know Woolworth things that I had before but you sort of fixate on them, on these things, these things, and I managed to convince my mum and dad to get them for me for a birthday present. And yeah, I can remember putting them on and just feeling like a million dollars. I remember having a pair of um, electric blue nylon Adidas trainers with bright yellow stripes, and they looked like they had those little. The, the, the sole had those like the grip was like lots of little tiny circles. I can remember them that clearly. And I remember those and I loved those. They had this really sort of like continental feel about them. They felt sort of quite European. And I remember those really clearly. And then obviously I I could probably tell you every pair of football boots I ever owned. Was that in in line with the World Cup that year? Uh, 82. Yeah, that was, yeah, it probably was. Those Adidas ones would have have been that summer. The coloration sounds quite summer World World Cup-esque kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. They were sort of, yeah, they were almost like Brazilian trainers, really, because they were that blue with yellow. They obviously made a mark because I can remember them so clearly. And I can remember the summer I had them and everything. And yeah, I was probably like nine or 10 or something. Yeah, like I said, I remember football boots. I remember getting 
Patrick football boots, which obviously were very important to me, because not only did Kevin Keegan wear them and they were like the top boots, but they had metal studs and they had my name on them. <laughs> what more could you want? <laughs> what more could I want? I always loved Converse. I always wore Converse from like, my dad used to go to America with work quite a lot. So I remember having Converse before everyone had them here because he bought them back for me. So I always had, always, I think I've probably had a pair of Converse in my drawer pretty much solidly since 1984. So there are quite a few, I mean, I'd be interested to know from you, and I'm, I guess I'm thinking specifically in trainer land, but there are like a, probably about five kinds of, of trainers, if you in that thinking in terms of that category, that are sort of timeless. I'd say that like Adidas shell toes are probably, or, or Stan Smith's maybe. Stan Smiths feel like they exist above any passing trend. Those kind of trainers that we're talking about, they're, they're very synonymous with music in my, in my head. And because I was never really into hip-hop or rap, I never really felt like I suited the shell tours because I, I think they really were quite synonymous with like the Beastie Boys and all that kind of thing. Whereas Converse were much more much more kind of rock and roll feel to it. Yeah, that's true. Um, I think maybe maybe the longevity and the, and the classicness of those styles mm. might be down to their like, musical ties. Yeah. I, 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 in, in, a, in a cultural sense, not. Yeah, and I think probably Converse, have, like, you know, in a commercial sense, have, have, have probably gone there a lot, haven't they, to, in terms of their sort of branding and whatever. They've tried to be in that world, haven't they? I think they, they definitely see themselves as more of a cult. Even though they're, they were originally made to be a sports shoe, clearly no one in their right mind is going to perform any kind of elite sport in a pair of Converse. When did the, the musical side of things kick in? When, when did you meet your first guitar? Again, I probably was about nine. I had a radio in my room. I've got this sense of certain songs coming on the radio that just seem to sort of like put a jolt of electricity through me. You know, it might have been what I now know to be a particular lift into a chorus. I don't know. But there were a couple of certain songs that I can just remember hearing it. If it came on, you know, and back then it's not Spotify, it's the radio. So if, if it came on randomly, just going, just feeling like, oh yeah, I just sort of like, literally almost feeling the charge of, of energy go through you from this particular piece of music. So I can remember that. And I, obviously at the time, it just happens and you don't think anything of it. But retrospectively, I guess that was the start of me being quite profoundly affected by music, which as I went into to sort of my teenage years, definitely became a thing I became quite conscious of. I can remember lying in bed at night with my Walkman on, and all the lights off, just listening to the Unforgettable Fire, the U2 album, which is quite sort of ambient and it's got definitely got a very visual cinematic aspect to it. And just hearing certain songs and literally just finding myself just in tears, not, not because the song was reminding me of something. There's no sort of, um, you know, because often music, that's why you get emotional listening to music because it reminds you of a person or a place or a memory or anything, something like that. This was just literally the the sound of the music and what was happening in headphones, I guess with all the lights off, just connected 
on a fairly deep level to the point where it sort of just it, it triggered a sort of pretty major emotional response and I guess when I was talking about you know when I was younger before that just getting that energy from music I guess I just always felt it quite deeply and then yeah I, we had a guitar in the house because my dad used to play a little bit it was an acoustic just in a nylon string acoustic that mostly only ever had about four three or four strings on it and I think the first playing I ever did was just used to pick it up and try and I used to play the bottom E string and just try and work out the bass notes of songs. And that's, that's how I sort of started goofing around on the guitar. A couple of my friends at the start of secondary school got electric guitars. And I'm, it was like, I remember going around to this guy's house and he got, he'd got this Gibson Les Paul copy. But the fact that it was an actual electric guitar sitting there in his bedroom, in the case, it was just like, Wow. It's like meeting a famous person. It's like that is a that actually is an electric guitar, and you, if you plug that into that that speaker thing over there, it makes this this noise. And you know, and then he'd let you have a go. He let me have a go on it, and obviously, you know, he wanted to do something amazing with it and could do nothing with it other than make an absolute racket. But I remember being like, I remember it was that profound. It was like, yeah, like I said, it was like a famous person. It was like, oh my god, that is an actual electric guitar. Because obviously, you know, I guess they were expensive and it's not like these days, you know, a lot of kids might have a cheap old electric guitar kicking around in their bedroom and whatever. But back then it's like, not, you know, not like loads of people had them. And, it, you know, this guy had one and it was like, ooh. I got one for my 16th birthday because I was just getting more into playing. I was obviously always massively into music, but I was trying to, trying to learn. And then once I got that guitar, that was it. Couldn't put it down, basically. And I just learned by Putting on, I didn't have any lessons or anything. I just used to put records on, actual records back then, uh, and just try to work the songs out. And that's why I'm probably the least technical guitar player <laughs> that you can get because I learned by literally just by ear. I used to like, you know, I remember there was my mum's friend had a son who was like three years older than me and he played guitar. And I went round to his house once and he showed me some chords and he showed me this thing that. Keith Richards does and so I'd nick a bit of that from him and then someone else would show me something else and then but other than that I was literally kind of doing it by by ear and by feel which is pretty much how I've done all my music ever since I just do it purely on on feel which has its limitations but I think what it what it brings from a positive perspective outweighs the limitations a million fold because music is about feel I mean I, I know plenty of technical musicians who are grade whatever black belt theorists and this that and the other and that's a specific talent in its own right and I'm not sort of dissing that in any way but in what I'm trying to do which is obviously writing songs it's 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 about it really is to do with a sort of a, a feeling yeah as long I think as long as you've got enough uh, ability in terms of playing in your locker to be able to express what you what you're trying to say then that's that's well that's what I see anyway. That's that's been good enough for me. I've got enough to be able to to be able to say well, I think it should do this or it should sound like that or it should go like this. Or what you know, but I've always been a fan of um, like musicians and like growing up even guitar players. But probably before I was even aware of it. But the ones that I always gravitated to were the ones who weren't necessarily doing all the fancy stuff, but who like with one note placed in the right place, the right sound, could put the hairs on the back of your neck up. You know. It's it's that truer connection with 
feeling and with uh, emotion, you know, whatever your line of creativity is, when it, when it comes from a, a kind of a truer sense of feeling, then it has that greater connection. Yeah, I guess so, because ultimately, whatever the, the medium is, you're, you're trying to transmit some form of emotion. So you don't want to get in the way of that. That's why if I'm thinking about it from a guitar playing point of view, all my favourite guitarists growing up, I mean, I obviously loved Keith Richards. I loved The Edge because I loved, I was obsessed with the Joshua Tree when I was like 14, 15. You know, those, those two guitar players, while they are in world famous bands and, and are renowned guitar players and will probably be in, in any top 50 guitar players in the world, but neither of them are technical. Actually, they're both quite simple in what they do. But the thing that I love about them is with either of those guys, within hearing a couple of notes of them playing, you can pretty much tell it's them. And also it's the fact that they convey so much with their with the, the choices of notes they play or how they play certain chords and how they phrase things. And there's like a musicality there and a vibe there and a spirit there. And probably more important than anything else, there's a soul to what they're doing mm. that transmits, you know, I guess as a kid, I would listen to them, but I could feel it. I'd feel, and that's probably one of the biggest lessons that you sort of learn going through the musical journey that I've, I've been on. It's music's kind of there to be listened to, of course, but you really, you want people to feel it as well as listen to it. You know, yeah. the listening bit is sort of like just the means by which you are enabled to, enabled to feel it. But really you're looking for a complete emotional connection. Cause when I'm, when I go back to thinking about what I just told you about being a kid and listening in bed on my headphones you know I wasn't just listening to it going well that's a nice sound it was profoundly affecting me I was feeling it fairly fundamentally and I guess there was no baggage around that to make me suddenly have tears in my eyes from listening to those songs it's not like they were reminding me of someone who died or something like that but it just just a combination of sounds and notes and whatever that was happening the atmospherics of it all it obviously created, and it's, it's an, it was a sort of an emotional landscape, if you like, if that doesn't sound really pretentious, that I just felt very, very profoundly. And I guess that's what you're always trying to do when you're, you know, not get in the way of how things feel as well as how they sound. It's kind of when you do things in your own way, the unique sense comes to the fore, and it's that uniqueness yeah. That then makes the connection to yeah. someone, to the difference between someone hearing it and someone truly feeling it. Yeah, well, obviously, you know, singers obviously have a voice and there are singers who can be amazing technical singers, have got massive ranges, can reach all those high notes. But the ones that really stand out are the ones who, whose voice transmits more than just good technical singing. They can inhabit a song, they know how to deliver a song. And there's just something tonally in that voice that when they sing certain things in certain ways, you can, you just feel it. You, you know, there are plenty of big singers who can, who can do all the amazing vocal gymnastics, but you know, it just, it's, that's not going to move you. It might move some people because if that's what they're into and that's what they want to be impressed by, fair enough. But that's getting into the point where it's like, sort of like, well, it's, it's like a sport. It's a performance thing. 
Yeah. But and it's the same with I think you know it's the same with 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 musicians that aren't that aren't singing you know and I, like I think we're talking about guitar players but um you know your music your instrument can have a voice definitely all the guitar players that I've loved they they have a voice in terms of how they play their guitar and what they do with it and that the whole point of that voice is it's it's saying something it's all right it's it's not saying words but it's definitely saying something that you know that the listener is 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 feeling you know it's painting a picture it's it's almost got colors to it do you know what i mean one thing i always feel that with guitarists and their guitars is there's that incredible personal connection it's like a best friend it's like another arm yeah and i think that's where when when you talk about um well, Keith Richards used to go to bed with his. That he was known for going to bed with his with his Telecaster and a gun. When you when you when you go through uh, like a musical career, and I'm I'm guessing you've been very attached to different guitars. Mm. Is it quite a, an emotional wrench to to leave one guitar and go to another guitar? Um. No, because it's very rare that you'd ever get rid of a guitar. I mean, I've got rid of probably, I think I've only ever got rid of one guitar. And that's only because it was worth a bit of money and I just wasn't using it. And at the studio where I worked, there was another one that's the, that's the same thing. You know, but I wouldn't, other than that, I think I've got every single guitar I've ever had. There are different, there was one guitar that I was my sort of mainstay guitar that I used all through the band I was in. And that's in the studio now and whenever and I still use it on different things and whenever I pick it up sort of fleetingly for a millisecond that's what that guitar symbolizes for me it was because that's where what I associate with it but then there's another guitar in the studio that um, I do a lot of work at in Mark Taylor's studio and it's an old vintage like early six it's like a 1963 airline guitar which was that they were sort of like I think they were sort of quite budget guitars in the early 60s, but Jack White made them quite famous. They're very cool. They look they look like they've come straight out of the sort of design aesthetic of America in the early 60s. And it's got like loads of knobs on it. And it's just, it looks the most amazing thing. And Mark picked it up in America ages ago, but like, I don't know why that guitar plugged into a certain thing. For me, it's just like the vibiest thing in the world. When we're working, assuming the kind of thing we're working on is has got a sort of rootsiness to it in some capacity that's the one i'll just without even thinking about it always go to that guitar because it just as soon as you start playing it it's just like okay i could do something with this i could there's a sound that it has it just you can immediately make it i don't know i feel like it it gives me the capacity to be creative It's, it's inspiring is what i'm basically saying so when i went back into the studio this week for the first time since the end of March because obviously we've been working remotely through lockdown I literally got into the studio and sat there and made a cup of coffee and, and literally the first thing after that first thing I did was went and got that guitar off the wall and just started playing it because it's like ah there you are my old friend and it's quite weird because it's that guitar is not one that everyone you know other people who go into that studio there's lots of guitars in there I wouldn't think that would be the one that 90% of people wouldn't even go and pick it up it's so i know where it sits on the wall hanging up and most of the time when i go and get it off the wall i know that i was the last person to pick it up 
It's awesome. I love it. And I get. I bet you there'd be, you could find another, I can't remember the model, but another 1963 red airline guitar that came off the same production line in the same factory in the same year at the same time. And I bet you it would feel entirely different. Because that's the thing about guitars, because they're made of wood. There's something about that, the qualities of the particular bit of wood that that guitar is made of that just makes it feel like that. Plus probably whatever's happened to it in the 50 odd years since it was, it was made and how that's impacted the wood along the way. Yeah. It's lived, it's lived its own life, hasn't it? Yeah. And that wood has probably being a natural uh, um, material, you know, it's probably aged in a particularly, in a very specific way. That's like, that's unique to that guitar, but whatever it is, it's just got a feel and a vibe about it that I love. And um, I don't know if someone else would pick it up and might, might not get that from it at all. But that's that's the great thing about guitars. That's why people get so anoraki about them because you know they're all after that 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 feeling with with a guitar that just that that, that guitar that certain guitar that you just plug it in. It's like oh yes, this sounds like magic, and it makes you feel like right, I can do something with this. What you've just said there about you know, they're obviously made of natural materials and then the different rooms they inhabit, the different people they are touched by, it seems almost natural that they, that that adds to their uniqueness as they, as they age. Like a person and a personality, the different people we meet, every person we meet has a, has an effect on us because we're either inspired by them in some way, they tell us a story, it's that kind of, small and large connections that we have with yeah. with people like you're having with guitars. Yeah. And it's like when you see really old vintage guitars, like one of the guys I work with, Paul Berry, he's, he's got um, a couple of really, really uh, beautiful acoustic guitars. And I think one of them, I'm almost certain it might be from the late twenties. If not, it's definitely, or is it the forties? Either way, it's properly old, like 70 something years old. <laughs> Right. Either way, either way, it's. I was, cool. yeah, I was just thinking. I don't want to say it's from the twenties <laughs> if it's not, but it might be from the early forties. I've got a feeling it might be from nineteen forty-two or something. But it's obviously somehow ended up in this country from America, and it's in great condition, and it's a beautiful guitar, and I think it cost him an absolute fortune. But we've often said, can you imagine if you could actually get this guitar to tell you its story of where it's been, where it's all the different people who've owned it along the way. Yeah, the different clubs and bars it's it's been played in at different points in history in, in sort of modern history. It would be amazing, and then you sort of think, well, yeah, that's why certain vintage instruments that are still in good condition do have this sort of quality about them, this mystical quality about them, because I guess you could say they've sort of they've lived a bit, you know, they've been through things, and and uh, yeah, that's why certain guitars just have certain certain qualities it's like when you see these certain old, old vintage electric guitars that are, might be sort of quite a light colored wood and they've got they're just you can tell they are just tobacco stained because they've just been in smoky rooms for like five decades you think wow if only you could tell me where you've been <laughs> when did you start to write songs as opposed to learn songs? When did you start to write songs, write the words and... Not until I got into my first band, which was later than 
you know, some people, especially by today's standards, but I was in like, I was probably like 22 and I've been playing the guitar in my bedroom and trying to get better and trying to get better. And I went to America and did a big road trip around America and listened to loads of music driving a car around America. And it was a bit of a light bulb moment where I was like, when I get back, I have got to start a band. I just have to do it. I think I was probably a little bit lacking in confidence to do it before. I, probably, I had thought about it a lot, but to make that leap of going, right, I'm going to do this. It's like, well, am I really capable? But that, that trip definitely was the light bulb. And I came back and that's when I sort of started my first band and that sort of coincided. I was, we did play covers. We played a few covers, but playing covers was never really the main reason. I, it was always like, well, if, you know, once I found a band to be in, it was like, well, let's, let's write some songs. And I didn't sort of have any kind of grand designs on going, well, therefore, and I'm going to be the guy who writes the songs. I just was like in the band, there was me and the guy who sung also played bass. And we just sort of naturally with the two songwriters in the band, I wrote, tried to write a couple of things on my own, which seemed to sort of hang together in a vaguely song-like way. <laughs> and, and the rest of the band liked it. And then I did a bit of writing with him. And then before you know it, you're just, you're just doing it. But it wasn't like a plan. I just sort of did it. I just sort of started doing it in a pretty organic way. Well, I'm in a band and we want to do our own songs. So we've got to start making them up. I've always been quite motivated. I'm not one of those people who'll sit there and wait for someone else to do it. I've always been the sort of kind of person who's like, well, if that's what we need to do, then right, let's get started. I'm, I'm, I'm here. Let's go. And, and that's how it started. Right. And was that El Camino then? No. Or was there another band before that? Yeah, yeah, I was in a couple of bands before that. That was a band up in in the mid-90s, up in, in Leeds, where I was a, at university at the time. I guess we were riding the way. We were in the north of England. It was like 1995. We were riding that sort of northern Britpop kind of jangly guitar vibe. Yeah, so that, that was the first one. And what was the name of that band then? It was... Uh, can you tell I was avoiding telling you the name? Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> it was um the delightfully named marigold star and we sent all our demos out in a yellow um, marigold washing up glove that that was our, our attempt to be sort of different as you can tell it worked really well because obviously clearly no one signed us that was my first one and it, i learned you know i learned a lot we did we did loads of gigs and do a combination of our own songs and covers and i think our own songs were all right actually they were you know they stood up Without, like I said, I didn't, I wasn't conscious of any of it at the time. But I guess it was just the start of of thinking about songs and how they hang together and what makes a song work and what doesn't. And I guess I'd listened to so much music up to that point and and carried on doing it. I think I'd sort of deconstructed so much music in my head listening to music. I remember being in on car journeys with like with my mum and dad when I was a kid. And listening to the walk, my Walkman, I used to love going on long car journeys because I could li- listen to music for like four hours just without in, in my headphones, which means it's in like right in your head. And I, I can remember being on certain car journeys and listening to albums and just like literally just listening to the drums the whole time, just literally tuning everything else out and then listening to what the bass was doing and then listening to what the guitars were doing and whatever. Uh, I think that probably helped because without knowing it, like I said, I'd sort of deconstructed a lot of songs and I still find now there's things that I can hear when we're putting a song together or doing an arrangement or doing a demo or whatever I might hear just a little bit of a 
a bit a little line or something and I, I don't I might not be able to completely pinpoint where it's from but it's definitely stuff that's been laid down in your sort of musical subconscious I'm just quite intrigued about the, the process of um, when you first kind of bring a few people together how do you get started with um, with creating a song with do you start with chords do you does someone naturally take the lead? Does well it depends. If you, are you talking about in a in a band in the band situation? Or are you talking about in a, like a professional songwriting situation? Because while there's similarities, they're, they're also different. Initially, thinking about in a band situation, especially when you might be bringing together people that are not connected socially, but connected through music and. So you, you you might not have the previous relationship to kind of fall back on, but you're kind of just coming together and go right. We're gonna we're gonna make a song. How do we? Where well, do we I guess start? That, that's with bands. That's what makes a, a band work or doesn't. It's like you get a group of people together who don't know each other. Well, you know, okay, some bands you do get the stories of. Yeah, we went to primary school together, but in the case of my band Van Tramp, that you know from back in the day you know when when we first got together there were a few threads but someone introduced someone else and someone else introduced someone else and there was a couple of people who were in another covers band over there and all the people involved all were up for doing a new original music band and then on top of that quite early on like literally in the first conversation with people you you realize that you know at least we're on the same page it's not like someone saying well yeah i want to do some sort of obscure reggae and someone else is going really but i'm i'm really into brazilian music and you know so you, you we're all going on you know everyone was in the same ballpark in terms of the kind of music they were into and then in our case you just sort of we just found our feet i had a couple of songs that i'd written myself that I sort of brought to the table that, that, that everyone loved. So that gave us something to play to begin with. Yeah, then we just sort of got into a, you know, band, you get into a bit of a, a band mentality and, you know, you start jamming together and playing together. And then in, in our case, Mike, the bass player, was also a, a writer. He was sort of coming up with stuff. And then me and him, basically realized we got on really well and we're into the same stuff so we started writing together and that formed a very natural you know writing partnership which which was great because that obviously the collaboration thing's massive and that's kind of how it happened in in our situation we became the two sort of writers in the band who either writing songs on our own or or together by most of what we did was done like that and and when you said you came to the band with um a couple of songs that you don't you that you've done yourself. Do you find yourself starting from a, a lyrical perspective or a, a or a chord perspective, musical perspective? Um, these days, it can come from anywhere, but that, this is very different. Like I said, it's a very different thing when you're doing it as a professional songwriter. But back then, I guess because I played the guitar and I was a guitarist in a band, I'd probably start by strumming the guitar I never found it that easy to write songs on my own because I'm not a singer so it was quite hard for me to vocalize the top line but what was what's been interesting is is on the journey that I've been on since going through the band and the band becoming a proper entity and having making a record and having it come out and getting somewhere 
Um, and then get becoming a professional songwriter on the back of that and having done that for the last, you know, 12 years or whatever. I, I had this vi- sort of vision in my head when I started working with the guys I work with now who, who you know, I'd just come out of a band that had had a, re- a record deal and put a record out, but nothing had happened, particularly like most bands who get put records out, you realise quite quickly. <laughs> That's what happens to most people. But um, I had this, the guys who, who I'd, work with uh, on our album produced it as the people who I've subsequently ended up working with for the last you know decade and um, they were very successful top level professional producers and songwriters you know Grammys and Ivan Avellos and god knows what like the top level yeah but I always used to think well what happens when the, when they're in the room doing their professional songwriting in speech marks songwriting's hard and these guys seem to have this amazing knack of writing these hit songs. And what is this magic thing that they do when they go in and shut the door? I cannot wait to get a little peek in to just so I can find out what it is that they do. And once I got the opportunity to be part of that, it, I realised quite quickly what they do and what I now do with them isn't really that difficult to what anyone does, even when they're in a band that's rehearsing in someone's bedroom and trying to write songs, they're just scrabbling around trying to find something good. They don't have a magic formula. They're obviously talented people and they've got a lot of experience. And I think the difference is their decision-making process. If you think about in a writing of a song, the number of of micro decisions you have to make along the way about the lyrics, the melody, the chords, the structure, the arrangement, there's literally thousands of different elements all working together simultaneously in a song. And you've got to get it, the balance of it more or less all right for it to, to be the finished article. The thing that I learned from them is decision-making and the ability to make the right call quickly. Have they learned to become, or do you learn to become less, less emotional about some of the songs that you create? Cause you kind of, you can become too attached to something that isn't working. Yeah. I mean, but that's part of the thing is like learning the art of being able to throw something out without it breaking your universe is part of the process of sort of, I guess, becoming more mature as a, as a creative person. I'm sure, I'm sure that applies to designing shoes or making a TV program or writing a book. You've got to have the conviction to be able to go, well, yeah, I have just pursued that. And it's not a waste of time because sometimes you have to pursue something to know that it's not right. Otherwise you leave it unanswered. But you also have to have the sort of courage to be able to go, yeah, I pursued that. And actually it's a load of old nonsense. And yeah, all right, I might've just lost a whole day, but if it ain't right, it ain't right. So it's gone and not to hang on to that. But then you find that with songs anyway, you know, when I came out of the band, we had our album of songs and our, and a few others. And that was our, you know, that was our set we played, that was our record and we were, all right, but we'd started writing for another album and, but really we had like 20 odd songs. All right, we'd probably written a load more, but they were our core songs that we'd written over the period of time we'd been in the band. And, you know, you put your life and everything, your heart and soul into every note and every word and it's your band and you're a, you've got that sort of band of brothers mentality and, you know, those songs literally are the most important thing to you. And people sort of say, oh, they're like your children's songs. And at the time they are, it's like you literally, if you, if you believe in what you're doing, which you need to in order to keep moving, you, 
you'd lay down and you'd fight for those songs. You'd fight tooth and nail for those songs. I remember being told this at the time and I can sort of really see it now. You have to be prepared to sort of give everything to writing a song and then move on to the next one and then move on to the next one. The more you write and the more songs you've written, the less attached you are to any one of them. That doesn't mean to say they're not important. They're all important. And there are, you know, there are days where you come out of a studio and you just think that's rubbish. I'd, I'd actually never want to hear that again because it's really not worth the tape it was recorded on. But on other days you come out of a studio and you're like, wow, that's amazing. I'm so proud of that. It's, that's, I guess that's what's so nice about doing songwriting in the way that, you know, I'm lucky enough to do it now is tomorrow, whatever happens today or whatever happened yesterday, tomorrow there's always another song to write. It's almost like someone comes along and just wipes the canvas clean again and says, right, there you go, go again. And it's like every time it's just another opportunity for something amazing to happen. That's um, the thing about creativity in a sense that you have to take the rough with the smooth. There's a lot more rough than smooth. I think um, uh, Mike Campbell, who was great guitar player, the guitar player in The Heartbreakers, Tom Petty in The Heartbreakers. And he was saying in, in, as musicians, songwriters, every day, if you're committed to it and you're serious about it, every time you go into a writing session or a studio, you're, you'll go in there in search of something like incredible. You're, you're, you're reaching for greatness every time because otherwise what's the point in doing it? You want to go in and write like the most amazing song that's going to blow your brains out and, and hopefully if everyone else's as well. That's, that's why you do it. It's always there. You're there going, oh, I'm going to write, I'm going to try and write an amazing, amazing song today. And in that pursuit of greatness, more often than not, you're going you're to come up short because it just can't happen like that. And that is really, and he, his thing was, that's really hard to take. Going in every day with a really authentic sense of pursuing that greatness and not achieving it, probably more often than not, it's hard to swallow. It's hard to, to take it. But the thing is, when you do do something really great, you know it. And if it's happened a few times, that's enough to keep you going after it again and again and again and again. And you don't know when it's going to come. You know, there's something, you, you could say there's something quite formulaic about professional songwriting, but really you're still always searching for that bolt of lightning and that bit of magic that is impossible to manufacture. You're always looking for that thing that's bigger than the sum of its parts. And you can't fake that. It either happens or it doesn't. But I guess what happens with experience is that you learn how to create the sort of scenarios where there's probably a greater likelihood of that happening. Right. And how, how do you create those scenarios then? Again, I think it probably comes down to your, that thing I just said about making decisions and knowing what the right, instinctively being able to feel what the right call is to make about whether that's right or whether that's wrong, whether that feels right, whether that feels wrong. I think one thing for me that's huge, the point that I sort of had a bit of a light bulb moment where I, I felt that I, I really did genuinely trust my instinct. It goes back to that thing I said about feeling music. There's just a thing where you just, you, you hear in, in, in writing sessions all the time, you hear people say, you know, you might be trying to write a lyric and it's like, it's just, yeah, but that's not right. Why isn't it? Oh, I don't know. It just doesn't feel right. Yeah. And sometimes people are going, well, what do you mean it doesn't feel right? It doesn't matter. If it doesn't feel right, 
if it does if you does in your core if it doesn't feel right you can go spend ages analyzing why it doesn't feel right and you could probably come up with a load of reasons but if it just doesn't feel right you just got to go well that doesn't feel right so therefore it's not right so what do we need to do to change it until you just go oh yeah that feels right and it's that trust in your sort of musical instinct that for me was quite a big moment in terms of i guess it's kind of confidence to be able to trust your own instinct to be able to just to make those calls yeah equally it's about showing up you can't just sit back and kind of wait for your light bulb moment or your you know your flash of eureka most people would would be waiting wasting a lifetime doing that i mean all the people that you you look to that are making a success of this like you said they turn up they go every day not even every day but they do it a lot and they and the thing is we only hear about the things that are brilliant i don't know what their strike rates are different people have different strike rates but what you don't i remember hearing it about david bowie and someone was saying oh david bowie's a genius and he obviously was a genius genuinely but david bowie's a genius because he tries all these different things he's not afraid of going down all these different creative avenues and that's what made him the sort of maverick artist that he was. But we only hear, generally speaking, we only hear the results when that little voyage down a particular you know, road has led to something really good or interesting. David Bowie didn't write heroes every time he sat down at a piano or picked up a guitar. But when he, so, but when he did get it right, it was like, you know, off the scale special. Like I said, you go in every day thinking you're going to do something really great and you want it to be really great because I want to be driving home from the studio feeling that sense of elation that I've done something amazing. The gems do appear out of the hard work. As long as you can look back on what you've done and and see that you have got it enough times to, to know that you can get it, then it's all about your resilience, basically, to, to keep trying to punch through all the time to, to get it again. And I think the thing is, once you have got it a few times, just that, that feeling that I spoke about, that's what you're chasing every, all the time. It's like the most addictive drug in the world. And also there's an element of, in my case, there's, there's that sort of ego insecurity push and pull. I think, you, you know, you've got to be, I suppose you've got to be fairly ballsy to, in the first place to think that you're going to try and write a song that's good enough to be on the radio. And that self-belief is important because that's what keeps you punching when it's getting hard. The insecurity bit, which definitely is there for me, is quite real too. And I don't think I'd want to change that either because, like I said, I could come out of a session and have written something that or been involved in writing something that's really good. And you get that I'm walking on air feeling and going, I totally know how to do this. And that I, I'm always surprised, even now, after all these years of doing it, how short that feeling is. It's like it literally goes within, if, if it lasts two days, three days, maybe. Because then obviously in the music industry, that song that you might have just done, sometimes it might not come out for a year. So it's not like, you'll get your, it's not like it's on the radio next week and you're getting the instant gratification. That, that feeling that you had the week before when you wrote that thing that was genuinely really good is like gone. So all you're doing is going, well, I just want to feel that feeling again. And in my case, sometimes I'm thinking to myself, well, actually, maybe I'm, maybe I'm not that good. Maybe I need one of the things, if, I'm, if I think about my own sort of process, if you like, 
half the time when I'm writing songs, I'm trying to prove it to myself every time. Not, but it's not about proving it to anyone else because I just need to reprove it to myself that I can do it. Sometimes that can be horrible and a horrible feeling, but I wouldn't want to lose it because sometimes that is actually a very powerful thing to drive you on is that desire to prove it to yourself. Even though any sane person could go and look at my catalogue and go, yeah, but you've got this and you wrote that and you wrote this and you wrote that. And there's a whole load of things there that basically should be able to tell me that I know what to do. It's amazing how I can just, that can just mean nothing for a minute until I go back into a studio and do it again and go, oh yeah, I can do it. I can do it. Do you know what I mean? Completely. And I think anybody that that has a, a career in any form of creativity will completely understand everything you've just been saying for the last five minutes there on that. Because it, it is, it, it's a roller coaster. I, I, I find that you can have really good days when things just seem to work really well and seem to kind of click and seem to flow and seem to come together beautifully. And then the next day, nothing comes together and you're just like well right I, I know you become used to that kind of roller coaster feeling the highs and the lows and you kind of you have to uh, remind yourself that this is what happens this is almost the routine you have to go through the troughs and the more you listen to sort of podcasts or interviews or read articles with you know, people who you perceive to be massively successful, who are providing they're being really honest about it, the more you realise that actually this is what happens to 99% of people. You know, there are very few princes or Stevie Wonders around that are existing in some, you know, superhuman stratosphere where most people have to work at it. And there is a, a level of ability that you definitely have to have but I do think in the music industry, I think if the, the resilience and the, the mental sort of attitude isn't right, you're just never going to get anywhere because it's, it's, it's running into brick walls all the time. Even when you do manage to go through all of the sort of hurdles of writing a song that is genuinely good enough to be something in the world, there's still no guarantees that any, it's going to happen because often, I mean, you know, that's, the, that's another part of it in our world me and the guys I work with, we've got Dropbox full of songs that most people have never heard and a lot of the times will probably never hear. Some of them, the reason that they won't hear them is probably because they're just not special enough. doesn't mean they're good. They're, they're probably because, you know, at this level, everything you do is probably good. But we're not looking for good. We're looking for magical. We're looking for special because those are the ones that sort of just punch through the noise. But there are some songs that we've done that are probably there are probably a few that are worthy of at least getting a shot. Most, you know, most of what you do will never get heard. I think, you know, you, you, you operate on a very high wastage rate. You might write 10 songs and one, one or two might get through the door in terms of someone going, oh yeah, okay, that, that could be something for someone. But then the amount of hurdles it's got, once we hand it over, the artist has got to like it. The A&R guy at the record label's got to like it and think it sounds right for the artist and it's the right song for the right time for this artist given their marketing campaign. All this stuff has nothing to do with us in the studio. And then they've got to play it to the radio plugger and the radio plugger's got to go, yeah, I can get that on the radio. Well, the radio plugger might just go, yeah, but, you know, that radio station just aren't playing mid-tempo ballads at the moment. 
And then obviously it has to get on the radio and then, then it has to get a positive reaction on the radio from the, from the listeners and whatever. It's like literally hurdles, 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 hurdles along the way. So you can do everything within your power to do the, the, the great bit of work that you need to do. And then you have to hand it onto this other side of the industry that we have very little to do with and don't really see and literally trust that other people are going to make the right calls. You know, there's plenty of examples where you can sit back and just watch situations where your work goes down the pan because of a series of bad decisions by marketing departments or whatever. And you have to be able to take that because that is part of what happens. It happens all the time. And you can sit there and go and be like, that's not fair. But it's not going to change it. It's going to happen. So you're either going to have a strop and go, well, I'm not doing this then. It's ridiculous. Or you just go, but tomorrow the canvas is blank and we might write another amazing song. And that, that's enough for me. Has that aspect that you've just been talking about there changed massively over the last 10 years because of social media and the fact that the artists have their own channels? What, because people can go direct to their audience, you mean? Yeah, they can go direct to the audience, whether it's via YouTube, via Instagram, via whatever different platforms, um, and get the response that they might want or need or require without needing the the box ticking that goes through in the kind of more traditional method of the industry? I mean, that is definitely possible. But again, even in, in the digital world where you're going direct to an audience, you've still got to be heard above the noise. But yeah, it's that, that you know, how do you, you could write the most beautiful song on an acoustic guitar with someone who's got an amazing voice and they could just literally do a version of it on YouTube and put it up. And that song, for whatever reason, could just ignite because someone plays it at a time when something poignant happens in the world and that song gets associated with it and then it just does that digital thing where it snowballs and snowballs and snowballs and before you know it, you know, everyone's talking about it and it's one of those things, one of those digital sensations. But equally, exactly the same song sung by exactly the same person, even if it's worthy of that and in another world could become massive, this massive thing, could just sit there unknown and have 400 people listen to it. Do you get artists coming to you and saying, I need a song, uh, I've got this idea, whatever it may be, and I don't, I don't need to go through the channels because I've already built up uh, a tribe through my social media? I mean, there are people who, are, who have done that. Nina Nesbitt, who was signed to a major label, when she, you know, she's still pretty young now, but uh, went through the whole major label experience and put with this writer and that writer and whatever, and it didn't happen, got dropped, and just was like, she's obviously smart enough and, and savvy enough and she was like, right, I, I can still do this. And she went and did her own thing, wrote some more songs, used what the small amount of profile she had and used social media. And now she's back on the radio as a, and she's sort of regarded as being the sort of a great example of a young independent artist who's done it themselves and has sort of shunned the shitty experience she had with major labels and basically is sticking two fingers up at it and who's achieved it herself. So it's definitely possible I think in the world that, that I'm in, in particular the kinds of songs and the artists we write with, it's really about getting on the radio for, for us because, you, you know, this the, the, the sort of income stream that comes from Spotify is so comically small, criminally small, I will say, in fact, because it is unbelievable what songwriters are getting from 
Spotify. It's it's obscene. For us, the sort of point of anything is to get songs on the radio because obviously radio still pay reasonable royalty rates. That hasn't changed massively. No one, basically, effectively, nobody is paying for music anymore. No one buys CDs basically anymore because everyone just streams it on Spotify. So the, the, the old revenue stream that came from someone actually handing over a tenor to buy a CD is, is effectively gone. But what you still have got is, is the money that you can uh, earn from airplay royalties. So that's why that is, is the holy grail. It's writing songs with artists with a view to hopefully getting one of the singles that's going to get on the radio. I've got a song that's been streamed knocking on the door 50 million times. Oh, wow. I mean, I know 50 million is, is big. It's not, I mean, there's songs on Spotify that have been streamed a billion times. That's sort of the top end. But even so, 50 million streams, it's not, it doesn't mean to say 50 million different people, but it's been listened to 50 million times. If I was to, I mean, I couldn't tell you actually off the top of my head what the income is off that, but it's absolutely tiny in relation to the number of times that song's been played because the royalty rate on it is like 0.006p. And I co-wrote that with two other people. So I'm not very good at fractions of decimal places, but all I know is one third of 0.006p, even if it's multiplied by 50 million, doesn't add up to a whole lot. <laughs> so yeah, that's why the, the you know the the the, the model is, is is definitely um is definitely different to what it would have been, you know, 15 years ago for sure. Is it is there much sign of that changing no no i don't think it'll be long before cds are obsolete i can't imagine that there's going to be a an, enough of a justification for i think i read somewhere lo- last week that for the first time in since the cd was invented in the early 80s that vinyl outsold cds in america for the first time last year so more people, if they're actually interested in buying physical product, they're buying a piece of vinyl rather than buying a CD. I can completely relate to that. I can see why people would want that. Yeah, it's it's a it's it's more of a beautiful item as well, isn't it? It's you feel more of a connection with vinyl. Yeah, and you know, no disrespect to anyone under twenty five, but any like I look at my my son Joseph, who's ten, and. He's going to be, he's growing up as a kid of the digital music era and he will, it will never enter his brain that you have to pay money for music. I mean, I'm enabling it because I've, I've got a Spotify family account. I use Spotify all the time, but he's got a Spotify account off my account and all right, I pay my 15 quid a month for that. But he's growing up in a, in a universe where the idea of, of actually having to pay money for music it's just going to be an absolute anathema to him. It's like, what? You have to pay for it. It's, surely it's just like... It's in the ether. I'm, I'm allowed to have it. Yeah, it's just like it's there. And, you know, that's, and that's, what, that's what streaming has done. You know, the songs that people are effectively listening to for basically for free, that's people's work. People have put a lot of time into writing those songs or, or also the, the career that's gone before it to get to the point where you're, where you're capable enough to write a song that's going to be listened to however many times on Spotify. Whenever the deals were done in the sort of murky period when 
streaming was was just starting and no one really knew what was going on that the people who actually create the content that it's all based upon i.e the songwriters and the musicians have been treated so harshly and i know you know people listening to this will go well you would say that but it is i mean it is criminal it's going to stop people being able to actually do it The, the value in, in music to the listener in terms of like emotional connection, the inspiration that you get from a, a song that lifts you, that moves you, that makes you want to dance, that reminds you of a, an incredible holiday that you had, r- reminds you of an incredible moment that happened to you. So much value is uh, emotional value and, and uh, is connected with music. But it's, um, it's amazing that, well, it makes music more disposable. What it becomes is more disposable. And you run the risk of sounding like a proper old fart talking like this. But I do stand by it. And we talked about this at the studio loads. Now, I know times move on and it's not all about things being like they were. And I totally get that. But if I think back, to, and you're probably the same. If I was 14 and I, I had the radio on and a song came on that I loved, I'd have, and I was like, wow, what's that? It's sort of a bit of chance that you've heard it on the radio. Then you'd have to hope the DJ said what it was. If not, you'd have to wait until you heard it again. And then I'd have to go, if I was like, I love that, I've got to get it. And because I was sort of massively into music, I was quite likely to go, I have to have that piece of music. I'd have to go and get my money up from my money box upstairs, walk down the road, get on the bus for, for 15 minutes, go to Kingston on the bus, walk, walk across Kingston Bridge into Kingston, go to R Price Records, buy this record, is probably buy the album. I heard one song, but buy the album. Walk all the way back to the bus stop, sit on the bus all the way home, probably reading the sleeve from top to bottom and all the notes and who wrote this and what the, who the producer was and who took the photos and da, 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 da. So by the time you get home, that investment in not only money, but time and effort, by the time that record goes on the turntable and the needle drops into the groove, you're already so deep in your relationship with that record before you even like heard a note because you've had to put a lot of work into acquiring it. So you damn well will listen to all five songs on side A and all five songs or four songs on side B. And that's how you will find that song that's like track nine that you've just formed this lifelong bond and relationship with because you will bother to listen to it. Whereas the problem with... That with anything in the digital world, everything's just there at the click of a button and no one's got any attention span. Yeah, too easy. It's too easy. You listen to the first 20... Like when we're putting demos together, it's like you have to think like that now. You think, well, no one's going to listen to anything beyond the first 30 seconds. So we've got to front load everything because, do you know what? Unless we capture people in that first 30 seconds, they've, they've gone. And unfortunately, that does change people's, in musical terms, it does change the depth of people's relationship with, with music, with artists, with bands. It will be a different relationship. I'm not saying people won't have deep relationships with music and with artists and whatever, but there was a lot more effort involved in acquiring music. You had to be a lot more committed, if you like, and therefore you, you, you cared about it probably more because now it's a bit more easy come, easy go. Whereas back then, if you had... 20 albums when you were 15 because that's all you could afford and that's all you could actually get apart from the you know the fact you had a c90 in your machine and you were waiting to take things off the radio but then if you did have 20 albums you 
unless you hated one of them, you, you, you just listened to all of them because that's all you had. Yeah, and you'd, you'd, you'd keep them for years and you'd cherish them. Yeah, exactly, and, and you know, wear them out. I mean, there's an, there's an upside as well. You know, the upside to the, the fact that, that Spotify exists in the, in, the, in, the, in the sort of younger generation means that, like, you know, my 10-year-old son, now he, he knows about and loves The Clash because he heard The Clash being played at, a, you know, Fulham, who we support, play London Calling before every match. So he, 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 he associates going to Fulham with that song and he wanted to know where that song came from. So I found it for him on Spotify. And then he just like went off and started listening because of that. He just started because he could, because it was, he was, it was the technology enabled him to do so. He then went and started listening to like the clash and wanted to know, reading all about them and da da da. And now he's 10 living in Brighton and, and absolutely loves the clash because he, you know, how would he have been able to do that? He's not going to go to a record shop and buy a clash album at his age. He's, you know, but, and through that, you know, then you, the other lists come up and say, if you like this, you might like that. And da, da, da. so there is definitely an upside to it. Out of interest, what song was the, uh, the 50 million player song? Oh, it's a song by, um, called Wait by a guy called JP Cooper, who's a, yeah, he's a sort of singer songwriter. Came out about, when did it come out? Two years ago, three years ago. One of the beautiful things I, I think about songs and therefore songwriting and song making is the fact that it can be, you know, it gets released to one particular audience that, that likes that genre of music, that artist or whatever. But then I don't think this um, happens in other forms of creativity, but it gets covered by another artist in another genre and then is released to another, uh, another, another set of fans, another whole new tribe of people. And it almost takes on a, a, an extended life that is either sideways or forwards. But also I think the other beautiful aspect of uh, a song being re-recorded in a different way is that, level of respect it's like another artist is paying a huge amount of respect to the original song but also yeah. wanting to like project it and, and yeah when it's done well and done in a credible way it's an amazing thing i mean there's plenty of cases of, of why on earth did you think you could cover that song what you what you what are you bring into you know it's why it's very hard to cover beatles songs and come out of it well right. i mean it's not, it's not it's not to say it hasn't happened and it has but you know but that, yeah, that, when it's done, I mean, I, I've been listening this week to a, uh, so Glenn Campbell, the old country crooner, did a cover of Times Like These by the Foo Fighters. All oh, right, wow. And, and it's, it's amazing. It's just awesome. It's exactly what you just described. It's like, I heard it because Bruce Springsteen does this radio show in lockdown from, it's called From, from My Home to Yours. He does it all from his ranch in New Jersey. And he talks in that amazing way that he does he's very philosophical and spiritual and he just plays the most amazing music so it's just it's awesome you can stream it via bbc sounds it's so good and um yeah he he played it he and it, it was just like i heard it i was just like oh my god i mean it's a great song anyway the foo fighters version is is amazing but glenn campbell does it in a kind of slightly 
uh, old school. So it's got that sort of big sort of Americana sort of landscape. It's got the sort of Western strings in it and all that sort of stuff. It's amazing. And it's exactly that thing. It's like, wow, I know this song so well. I know the Foo Fighters version so well. And he just gives it a whole new complexion. And it, it's sort of like, yeah, I, I mean, I can't stop listening to it. So that is, that, that, is, that is an amazing thing when that happens. And you're right, it can open up songs to a whole new, yeah, a whole new audience, which is, which is brilliant, you know. That thing, sometimes you find people going, oh, you heard that song by blah, blah, blah. And if it's a cover and you go, oh, yeah, do you know that's a cover by so-and-so from however many years ago? And they go, I never knew that. I never knew that was a cover. Oh, wow. And then, you know, hopefully that encourages people to go and find the original artist and it's a gateway into whole a whole other universe, which is, I guess that's where the Spotify thing is good because you can actually go and do that very quickly, you know. Comes down to a level of curiosity as well, doesn't it, I guess? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I used to devour interviews of people I, I loved and what I loved is when they talked about who they loved and what made them get into what they got into because then you'd go, you'd go to the source, you know. I remember reading a big interview with... Um, the guitarist Nick McCabe, who used to be the guitarist in The Verve, who was an you know someone I loved when I was learning and growing up, a very original sort of unique sounding guitarist. I remember reading an interview with him, and he was talking about um, John Martin and Eddie Hazel from um, is it from Parliament, you know George Clinton and all that sort of stuff. And I, I sort of didn't really know who any of these people were, but I was damn sure going to find out. And then, and because you've been, the door's been opened because someone you respect and you admire has mentioned him. You, yeah, of course, if you're curious, you're going to go and find out John Martin, who's this? And then all of a sudden, I'm, I, you know, you discover John Martin and you work out who he is and what his classics albums are, and, da, 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 and that's that's just the the learning curve, isn't it? It's never ending. Yeah, you can keep following the threads of of inspiration and and uh, and genres and and you know who's been inspired by who and and also that and some of the the people that you look to that are like your absolute idols who've been responsible for sort of the most sort of incredible songs that have literally shaped your your own personal world you know sometimes you hear them talking about it and all they were doing was trying to copy someone that they loved so you might be looking at them going well all i'm really doing is being i'm just trying to copy that bruce springsteen song and then you listen to Bruce Springsteen talking about when he wrote whatever, and he's going, well, I was just trying to write a Ronette song because I love Phil Spector. And I guess to wrap it all up, that's what everything always comes down to. If you're talking about creativity, all you're ever looking for is to be inspired enough to, to, to have a crack at doing something. Dare I say it, you're going to go, well, I'm so blown away by listening to that song, even if it is like an iconic song. I'm going for that. I might not get it. I might get a few rungs down, but even if I'm going for that and I get a few rungs down, that's that's not still probably not a bad place to be. Of what you've created recently, well, recently saying maybe in the last few years or whatever, what are you, what are you most proud of then? Musically. Um, I, I tell you what, I, 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 I will give you a quick answer on that one because it's pertinent to what's happening now. And this is a good real-time example of how bonkers everything we do is. So 
But in about 2017, me and Paul Barry, who is a very talented and amazing guy, actually, who I've had the pleasure of working with and I've learned so much from, we worked with an American uh, artist called Christian Paul, who came over and he was from Tennessee and he's a young guy with an amazing voice. He's white, but he'd grown up in the sort of evangelical church in the South very Christian he wasn't writing like Christian music it was um he was an art pop artist but understandably very informed by the music of the churches that he'd spent a lot of his formative years growing up in and so we wrote this song with him he just was in for one day and we wrote this song with him and uh, it was about a friend of his at school when he was 17 and committed suicide and he was quite open about all this so and he wanted to address it so we wrote we wrote this song with him called Mama Said and the whole ethos of it was about like he was trying to say well if I could have my time again this is what I would try and say to this guy in the moment to try and stop him going to the darkest place you can go and so we wrote this song called Mama Said and it had a sort of gospel vibe to it and it was all about you know uh, Mama Said don't worry where the sun is gone don't you know your darkest hour is only 60 minutes long Mama Said don't give up today that's the sort of general gist of it. It's like, you know, darkness and dark moments are very vivid and very real when you're in them, but they do pass. And just sort of basically saying, hang in there. Um, so we wrote this song and it felt great at the time and he sang it really well and blah, blah, blah. And then like all artists, he disappeared off. We never heard from him again, never heard from the label. And that was that. And it's like, oh, there's another song, really good song, but I guess that just goes in the folder. And then... In the summer, just gone, so two, three years later, um, where I do my stuff at Metrophonic, they're doing a, they were doing a, an album with Misha Paris, the you know, iconic British gospel soul singer who's always with Jules Holland and had hits herself and whatever back in the, in the 80s. Amazing singer. And she's just done a programme on BBC Four um, called The Gospel According to Misha Paris, where she basically explores gospel music via a handful of gospel songs and what, what gospel music's all about. And I've always been fascinated by the whole gospel thing because, you know, gospel basically feeds into soul, which, and there you are right in the thick of, that's the source. That really is the source right there. And because the, Misha Paris was doing this record at Metrophonic where I do my stuff, um, most of it was covers, but they were looking for an original song for her. So I got the email, you know, anything anything spring to mind that we might have done that might work for, for Misha. And I suddenly was like, what about that Mama Said song? So sent it in. I mean, this happens all the time. Most of the time it's like, yeah, it's not really right. Whatever. Anyway, sent it in. It was like, oh yeah, this could really work. We might need to rewrite the lyrics. So me and Paul rewrote the lyrics to make it a little less specific about this guy and his situation. Um, then they played it to Misha. And this is where the sort of, this is where the stars align in a way that you cannot script, but you just have to have faith that occasionally this happens. So she was brought up by her grandparents. And it just so happened that she used to call her grandma Mama. And she is always apparently saying things like the phrase Mama said, blah, 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 blah. It's just something that's a real thing for her. Now, that wasn't obviously by design. That's what that's what's in the song that we wrote back then when we didn't know any of this was happening or anything. So for whatever reason, the message of the song and even a, a, the title of it and everything just totally 
hit the bullseye in terms of an, an emotional connection for her. And so she, then she loved it. They played it to the label, the demo, the label loved it. And she's recorded this album, which comes out, I think, in the next month or so. And that's going to be the, the, the first single off it. And I, I heard a first version of it on Tuesday when I went in, which is her singing this song with the gospel choir. Wow. And it's, it's pretty, it was pretty profound, actually. It was like, it's pretty amazing. So if it, I, I need to hear the fully finished mixed version, but the fact that it's a song that I really loved and was, was as, as genuine as a song can be because of what it was about. And then it went on this weird journey and then she has obviously got hold of it and connected to it. And she, she knows how to deliver a song, obviously because she can connect with it emotionally. She's singing it with a sort of a depth and a, and a sense of feeling. And then with the choir on it as well. And it, it just sound, it just was like, that's something that I, you know, you sort of think I'll, I'll take that one with me to my grave, that one, that's a, a winner. So, and the fact that it's now going to, it's going to come out in the next, you know, six weeks or so is great. Who knows? I might be, what I'm saying about it is, is what I think about it. What I don't know what the world will make of it, whether anyone at radio might just go, yeah, we're not playing a gospel song on the radio, but I just think it's a special song. It's one of those ones that seems to, that is an example of one where it feels like um, that thing I said earlier about when the whole is greater than the sum of the parts for whatever reason. And she's definitely bringing something to that, of course. Her, her, her delivery of it is, is contributed to that. So that's one I am, that's come about as in a bit of a random way, which often the best things do. And it's a song that I'm definitely proud of and I'm definitely blown away by this particular version of it and the fact that there's this choir on it and it's given it the sort of depth that I suppose it, it's, it's worthy of. What happens to it beyond beyond that is anybody's guess, but it's definitely one that I, you know, there are certain songs you just say, I'd play that to literally anyone and chat and, and, and be proud of it, no matter what anyone would say. Yeah, there's a, the, the pride is in the um, the result of the creation, not like, not the outside uh, external no. gratification, but it's no, just the but actual then... internal pride of creating something that's turned out beautiful in its in its essence not in exactly but then obviously if you feel like when you can see it touch other people as well that's a pretty humbling thing too you know when people are sort of genuinely affected by something you've done that's quite a a humbling feeling to think that wow you know it's that thing it's because it's people you if it goes out into the world it's people you don't know and a lot of people's reactions to stuff you've done you'll never know about if i think about my relationship how deep my relationship is with some of my most important songs to me in my life and how they've literally changed my life. You know, these people say, oh, songs can change your life or an album can change your life. And then some people go, yeah, that's just a bit flippant. I'm I'm like, no, it's not. Albums and songs and artists have fundamentally defined the choices I've made in my life. No question. And yet those people would, the people who created those songs we have no idea who I am. Quite rightly so. Why would they? So I guess that's what's happening is when you put something out there, you don't know as the creator, you've got no idea what impact it's having on one person. If it has a, a profound impact on one person, 
then it was worth doing in the first place, you know. Another beautiful aspect of of being courageous enough to actually create something and put it out there, not just in your bedroom or just, you know, taking that extra leap of faith to actually put something out into the world where, yeah, you might get a bit of critique for it, but actually also you might really change someone's life and inspire someone to do something creative with their life or inspirational with their life that then goes further down the line. Yeah, I I remember... um... Back in the like the band days, this would have been like 2006, and it was sort of in the the glory days of MySpace. It enabled us to be able to, in a I guess sort of primitive digital way, connect with people, even though we were in London, in anywhere in the world, and we seemed to pick up a few MySpace fans in America. And I don't know if you remember our song "Help Me Make It." Yeah, and that was one that I'd written, and I remember getting a message on MySpace from some woman in somewhere in the middle of America not we're not talking about you know metropolitan east west coast I can't remember where it was but somewhere in the middle and she just messaged me to say I listen to this song all the time and my husband is in Iraq and I think she said he'd he'd been out he'd done one tour come back and he, he and she, obviously she was it was amazing for her to be able to see him and spend time with him and then he went back for a second tour the fact that he'd come back had made it even more painful for him to go again and obviously you know you can't even imagine what the the, the worry of that is and she just messaged me to say explain all this and just say but you know this song with the line was helped me make it through the night she said it just really resonated with me and i just listened to it all the time and it's really comforting or whatever and I, I, you know, I can still remember that now. I mean, it was like one person, but obviously going through something pretty, pretty major. And for whatever reason, that song, even though it's nothing to do with what her personal experience was, is not about that or or anything like that. But for some reason, you know, it resonated in a way that gave her a little bit of comfort in a particularly challenging time. And because she was nice enough to message me to tell me you know those sort of things they do they stay with you those and that's what makes it worthwhile you know you don't often get to hear things like that but when you do it's 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 really sort of like i said it's really humbling to go it sort of like stops you in your tracks a bit you think wow she might have never listened to that song again or she might still be listening to it now i'll never know but it definitely connected you know in a in a major way and if you've been responsible in, or even partially responsible for creating something that, that that connects with someone like that then as a as an artist that's you know that's job done really it is like gifts to the world really it's a really generous act of creativity to to put your songs out there into the world for anybody to to receive either solace or joy or inspiration um i don't know i just think it's quite a beautiful thing yeah, I think if what you're doing is, if it's authentic and the message of it is genuine and rooted in something real, then absolutely. I mean, I'm not going to deny in our world, sometimes our sole aim is to write something that sounds like a hit. Yeah. And sometimes that's a more calculated version of doing what I just said. But there are songs, for example, the the one I just mentioned that Misha Paris has done with the choir, where we wrote it with this guy. And all right, he came into us as a, young artist wanting to work with professional writers but he wanted to write about something 
quite dark and quite genuine and quite real. And we just had helped him realise that and do that in a way that he wouldn't have been able to necessarily do on his own. But it was written, it's as genuine a song as you're going to get. So I just hope that this version, which has got a whole level of emotional weight to it now, because it sort of almost was written as a gospel song, but now has become an actual gospel song sung by a credible, you know, soul gospel singer with a choir. It will mean something to some people, you know, and the message it's sort of conveying is in, in your hour of darkest need and despair, you know, try and find a way to hang in there because, you know, you can, you can get through it. Don't give up. If it, if it helps anyone, however they want to interpret that message in any aspect of their life, whether it's something as dark as what it was originally written about or whether it's someone just trying to get through having a bad day, then, then like you said, it is a, when you actually stop and think about it and step back from it, it's like, wow. Maybe I should take a bit more care in some of the lyrics I write. <laughs> <laughs> now that you're back in the studio and uh, what, what, what you're looking forward to doing um, in the very near future, what, what's, what's next on the list? Um, well, we hope the, the guy that uh, Alex France is, is um, a young artist, well, young, he's 30, but um, he's James Bay's brother and he's brilliant. And we've been working with him over the last year and a half. And we carried on writing with him all through lockdown on, on Zoom and whatever. So we've, we've basically written a whole album with him, which I, which I love. It's sort of, sort of solely singer-songwritery rooted in all sorts of good references. He sounds a bit like a cross between Otis Redding and Ray LaMontagne vocally and... Yeah, he loves his sort of 70s singer-songwriters, and but it's definitely got that sort of soulful element to it as well. So we've we've done a we've basically written our whole album with him. So the next sort of big thing is to try and now we're sort of hopefully able to actually go to the studio is to actually turn those demos into into records and try and get that project off the ground. So that's that's one that sort of I'm excited about because we've put a lot into it and I really like what the songs are there. We've done the songs, that's the hard bit. And now we've got to put the clothes on them if you like and, and make them sound great and, and try and give give it, you know, give give it a chance of having a life in the world. So that's 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 one. Cool. Yeah. That sounds good. Cheers Pat. Thank you very much for uh coming on. No worries mate. Good luck with the uh with the album that you just mentioned. Yeah, no, thanks. Thank you. And thank you for listening. You can find out more at anthonystoker.com Until next time. <laughs>